Hey, I want to welcome you to another edition of On Leadership with uh, Sean Lovejoy and I. I'm Todd Wilson, the founder and CEO of Exponential, and uh, Sean's the uh, founder of Courage to Lead. Uh, we have a special guest today, Andy Stanley. Uh, we want to welcome you, Andy. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, we are trying to walk through, Andy, a series of just very practical questions for church leaders and business leaders and staff. And uh, this topic of decision-making uh, is, is really an important one. Uh, you've done a recent book called um, uh, Better Decisions, uh, fewer <laughs> Better Decisions, Fewer <laughs> Regrets. And um, uh, you've done a sermon series on it. Fantastic book with five questions. Why don't we just start out with uh, you giving a little bit of background context, like you've written lots of books and you, you could have written just about anything you wanted this time around. Why a book on decision-making right now? Well, uh, this is these have sort of been life messages for me for many, many years. And as I talk about at the beginning of the book, um, a couple of these questions are questions I was raised on by my dad. And, um, you know, this information that's sort of been scattered, you know, through a variety of teaching opportunities I've had. And I thought, I would like to put all of this in one container specifically for my kids, um, for students, for college students, for anybody who's making a decision, because our decisions are really the steering wheel of our lives. We can't control what other people do to us or uh, how they treat us, but we can always, you know, we determine our responses and a response is a decision. So essentially, our lives are no better than the decisions we make, and um, our decisions determine the direction and quality of our lives. And so um, we all have a somewhat of a decision-making grid that we you know, look at options through. Um, most people don't know what their grid is. So in this book, I've basically said, here are five questions I want you to add to the decision-making grid because the more questions you ask and the better questions you ask, the better decisions you make. And the reason we know that is because everybody in your audience at some point has made a bad decision, look back on it and either thought or said out loud, wow, I should have asked more questions. In other words, I should have gotten more information before I pulled the trigger on this decision. So I am absolutely confident if anyone will make it a habit of asking these five questions, anytime they're making a significant decision, they will make a better decision and consequently they will live with far less regret. So I was, I just love the fact that I was able to take again, this, um, these questions I've been asking for years and package them in the book, better decisions, fewer regrets. And would you say this idea of a decision grid, and then it, for you, it translates into five questions. These come from your personal upbringing and life experience raising your own kids. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And in the book, of course, um, you know, I anchor these to some, th I anchor three of them to some biblical narratives in super creative ways. Then two of them I just anchor to two teachings in the New Testament. Um, in some ways, it's kind of common sense, but sometimes common sense isn't all that common. But they are certainly rooted in biblical principles and illustrated throughout the scripture and honestly illustrated in all of our lives. I don't think but maybe one or two of these questions would be new to anyone in the audience. But again, having these five questions out there in front anytime I'm making a big decision, what it does, it slows me down. It forces me to be honest with myself, which is one of the first questions. Um, and again, it just brings more data to the table. And as a result, we make better decisions. Let's pull the five questions up on the screen here just to give people a highlight. We're going to, during this session, we're going to walk through these questions one by one. And uh, so we've got the five questions, Andy, you've characterized them, the integrity question, 
am I being honest with myself really? And, and just if you could, I, I know you're really big on, you've got like the three A's that you've got to be disciplined to ask the question. You've yeah. got to answer the question honestly, yeah. and then you've actually got to act on it. Right. So why don't you just talk for a minute about that framework of, of how, uh, maybe it's yourself, how you apply this in your life, even like the integrity question kind of thing. So I'm not sure what you want me to do. You want me to talk about the integrity question or the, those three things, the three A's you just mentioned? Why don't you just ex- tie in those three A's to any one of the questions, just as an example yeah. of how they apply. Well, yeah. So you got to ask the question, but you got to an- answer it honestly. And one of the things I talk about in the book is even if you don't like your answer to the question, at least answer it honestly, because you owe it to yourself to know the answer to these questions, whether you act on it or not. And of course, nobody's going to know the answer except you. And this really does set us up for the first question, which is Todd said is the integrity question, which is, am I being honest with myself? And then you have to ask this one twice. Am I being honest with myself? Really? Mm -hmm. Um, As everybody in your audience knows, especially those in leadership, the easiest, the easiest person to deceive is the person in the mirror. And self-leadership, self-leadership is the key to sustained influence. Um, You can be a leader and not be a leader worth following, but you cannot be a leader that has sustained influence if you are dishonest with yourself. Um, In organizational life, if you discover somebody you've um, hired is a liar, you fire a liar. You cannot lead or manage a liar well. So as long as we're lying to ourselves, um, we're never going to lead ourselves well. And again, the most difficult person I will ever have to lead is the person in the mirror. So um, whenever there's a big decision to be made, um, whenever I'm thinking about going in to present something or try to convince a group of people of something, to look in the mirror, and I say it out loud, Andy, okay, are you being honest with yourself or are you selling yourself? Because all of us have a little sales associate that lives in our head. Um, The one that lives in my head, his voice sounds a lot like my voice and I can sell myself on just about anything. And Todd, you can sell yourself on just about anything. I tell people all the time, you may not be able to sell anybody, sell anything to anybody else, but you can flat sell yourself on some really bad (laughs) ideas. So, this, this process of asking these five questions begins with the, the self-leadership question, which is, am I being honest with myself really? Why am I going there really? Why am I wearing this really? Why did I choose to teach on this really? Why am I so concerned about this really? Why am I saying yes to this invitation really? Why am I saying no to this invitation really? So it begins with um, you know, a long, hard look in the mirror and ask the question, am I, am I telling myself the truth or am I selling myself? One of the things I talk a lot about in the book is this, we rarely have to sell ourselves on a good idea. The moment you catch yourself selling yourself, you should hit the pause button because you're probably selling yourself on a regret. And again, we don't, you know, we don't have to look too far back in our own past to, you know, remember an opportunity or remember time that we did that. So am I being honest with myself? Really? Hmm. The uh, you've written quite a few books as we jump into kind of walking through these one by one. uh, I'm sure you've got favorites. Your family probably has favorites. Um, your wife, Sandra calls this a cute little book. Like if I'm, if I'm uh, your dad, your kids, since this is so much about raising kids and I mean, even the decision-making and raising kids say, what's your family think about this book before we jump into the church side? Well, you know, the most interesting thing about that, 
question is what my dad said. Um, I, I took it over to show it to my dad. I said, hey, you need to read the introduction because I tell a story about you. And then dad, at the very end of the conclusion, I tell another story about you. Just, you know, I just wanted him to read and just, you know, hear me brag about him. So I came back over and he had the book sitting on his kitchen counter. He said, I read that book three times. I'm like, what? He said, I read it three times. He said, I wish I'd had this book when I was in my 20s and every college student in America needs to read this book. I said, well, I agree for not all the right reasons. But yeah, I, I you know, people who are in the front end of the decision making process, especially big decisions, they need to ask these five questions. Then a couple of weeks later, I was over there and um, the book was still out. He said, I read it again. I said, what? I said, you've read my book four times. He says, Every college student in America needs to read this book. So that's been a lot of fun. And then in terms of my own kids, these are the questions I raise my kids on. Mm -hmm. um, and again, as I talk about at the beginning of the book, a couple of these questions my dad raised me on. Now, the story I tell at the beginning and the reason I wanted him to read the introduction is I opened the book up by saying that growing up, my dad had a really, when I was growing up, my dad had a really bad habit. And the bad habit was he would not answer my questions, um, specifically when I was asking him for advice to, you know, what should I do in this situation? And when I was very young, probably too young, I would say, you know, most kids don't even want their parents' advice, but every once in a while, you know, we need to know what to do or how to do something. And he would always say, well, what would you do if I wasn't here? He would always say that, well, what would you do if I was here? And I would say, well, you are here. But he'd say, yeah, but what would you do or how would you decide if I wasn't here? And very early on, he just put the decision-making um, weight and the decision-making pressure right back on me, which I realize now he was teaching me how to make good decisions. But the other thing he did that I'm not sure he knew he was doing, he was also helping me connect two dots that I think most people don't connect. And that's the connection. That's the connection or the relationship between good questions and good decisions. If you ask good questions, if you answer those questions honestly, if you act on your answer, you're going to make better decisions. So I'm telling you, just understanding the relationship between good questions and good decisions is you know, it, it's worth, um, well, it's, it's just worth a lot because again, we, our decisions are rarely any better than the questions that we ask. Either the questions we ask subconsciously, like, will this make me happy? Will anybody find out? Am I going to get in trouble? I mean, there's, there's all these questions we ask subconsciously, but to bring these five questions to bear on any significant decision, you're going to make better decisions. You'll live with fewer regrets. Hmm. Well, I'm going to confess, Andy, I, I read the book once. I haven't read it three times yet. <laughs> but you uh, have I, three copies. I have three <laughs> copies. That's right. I do have three copies of the book. Um, and I have gone through the sermon series. In fact, I want to encourage listeners uh, available online. People can just uh, go to the church's website and watch. And they, uh, they can just go to my YouTube channel. All those messages are up there. It's easier to find them on YouTube. But yeah. Right. Which gives a very good summary of the five questions. I found it very useful going through the book and the five questions. It was very easy for me to apply personally, like just to decisions personally. What Sean and I would like to do today, I, I kept finding myself going through the book saying, okay, how do I apply this at Exponential? Okay, how do I apply this at church? How do I apply it with the staff? And most of our listeners, that's the lens they're going to come through too. So mm -hmm. we want to walk through the five questions, Andy. And what I'm going to ask you to do on each one is maybe share whether it's with your own staff, their church, an example of the application of the question, and then Sean and I'll kind of take it from there. So yeah, uh, that's a good idea. Let's jump into the first question. 
you titled it the integrity question. We kind of hit on that title before. Am I being honest with myself yeah. really? Yep. So if, I don't know if you've got an example that you can help yeah. bring that to life at the church. Yeah. Um, f- for lead pastors or, you know, leaders who, any leader who has a board or who has a team of volunteers or who has staff and they lead a staff meeting, anytime you go in to pitch an idea or pitch change to your staff, to your board, or even your volunteers, you need to be dead level honest with yourself about why you're pitching that idea. Now, if I can just keep my senior pastor hat on for just a minute. And Sean can certainly relate to this as a senior pastor and you could too as well, Ty, because you've dealt with so many pastors. We know that in church world, lead pastors, and it's always men, and there may be women who do this, but I don't know. If any. <laughs> men have a tendency to do what? I think it's just men. <laughs> I do too. Because of our ego, because of our pride, because you know, of, you know, because of our fallen nature, it is so easy for pastors to intentionally and justify it, or I think even sometimes unintentionally because they're not self-aware, leverage the church for their own benefit and to, to um, position, position the church over time for their own benefit. And because we're communicators, because you give us a microphone, you know, we can move heaven and earth. It is, it is so easy to abuse spiritual power because, again, it's not just me with a microphone, you know, for people in my congregation, for my board, for my staff. I kind of represent God a little bit. Um, I play that down as much as I can. Not every lead pastor does. But I think where lead pastors in particular get in trouble, they're not even honest with themselves about why they're doing what they're doing. And the super sharp people in their church, they see through all the sales and all the, you know, you know, hype and all the, you know, stuff that, you know, we can razzle dazzle people with. But most people, because they trust their pastor and they should be able to trust their pastor, they will simply go along with when the pastor stands up and says, you know, this is what we're going to do. And this is why we're going to build this. And this is why we're going to sell this. And this is why we're going to move that. And here's why we need to raise money. You know, it goes on and on and on. So we are no better. We are no better as leaders than our willingness to be honest with ourselves. And that's why I think before any big decision, any big change, any big, hey, I've put together this presentation because, you know, from time to time, we do have to sell people on ideas, good ideas to look in the mirror and say, okay, Andy, why are you doing this really? Why are you doing this really? Because if I'm not honest with myself, it's going to be very, very easy to be dishonest with whoever else I'm talking to. So, you know, the most over-quoted, under-applied thing Jesus ever said was the truth will set you free. We have a hard time being honest with ourselves. And here's what I tell people, and this is so politically incorrect. I say, look, you got to tell yourself the truth, even when the truth makes you feel bad about yourself. There is something worse than feeling bad about yourself, and that is this, something being bad about yourself and not being willing to admit it and address it. So just tell yourself the truth. So this is a leadership question, if anything else, because again, the most difficult person to lead is the person in the mirror. The easiest person to deceive is always the person in the mirror. Well, 
Yeah, go ahead, Sean. I was just going to say, Andy, I want to say to you, you know, a lot of some people know this because I talk about it all the time in my coaching circles with pastors and leaders. Not everybody, of course, on this call will know that, but you, I watched you do that. You know, I had, I walked up to you at 28 years old, moved to Metro Atlanta, start a church. You always said, do for one for what, what you wish you could do for many. And I asked if I could buy you a cup of coffee and you said yes and became one of my mentors for a season. And I watched you live this out. I watched you be candid with your team and admit to them, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not even sure I know my own heart on this issue. And I, th- I think some leaders are afraid of letting their team see them bleed like that. Yeah. But that appropriate vulnerability says, okay, well, he's not just hedging us. He's not selling us. Mm-hmm. Like he's legitimately trying to order his heart. And you're brilliant. I mean, best communicator in the world. But you match an EQ with your with your IQ, and you're self aware enough to it to know even your weaknesses and your faults, and and be willing to admit them to your team, which I think gives you credibility as the leader. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I tell leaders all the time when you're transparent with your team and you acknowledge your weakness, nobody reaches for their pen to write it down. They already know. They are just thrilled you finally figured it out. So there is no win in trying to protect protect ourselves, Um, even though obviously self-protection is a a big part of being a human being. So thank you for saying all that. I hope it's true. So, Andy, how do you if we apply this at the team level, how do you deal with the balance? You know, as as leaders in the church, we want to be grace filled and patient with staff. But you made the comment earlier, fire liars like. What happens, they say, as soon as you think you need to fire somebody, you probably need to fire them. So how do you, how do you maneuver here the idea of grace and patience and development of staff? And when you really need to let somebody go with this question, am I being honest with myself really? Well, that's a big topic you just opened up, but I will <laughs> walk down that road until you, you know, pull me back. To refuse to fire someone is to punish everybody else in the organization. Wow. So the problem is we get so focused on the individual, we forget that we're punishing, you know, other people in the organization. And this sounds terrible, okay? So don't tell anybody I said this. The, a, a leader in an organization has to love the organization more than they love anyone in the organization. Sounds terrible. But the reason you have to love the organization more than you love any individual in the organization is because that's how you protect the organization. And if you have a healthy organization, it's going to grow. If it's going to grow, you get to hire more people. So growth, I mean, regardless of what the organization is, you want the organization to grow and that takes great people. So you can't carry people that perhaps you should not have hired in the first place. But back to your original question, if somebody is a liar, that's a character issue and you can't coach character. So um, from time to time, people just have to be let go and graciously and paid well and you do the best that you can. But if you don't, you hold the, the organization back. Here's the ultimate principle. You always sacrifice the one for the many never sacrifice the many for the one. You always sacrifice the one for the many. You never sacrifice the many for the one. In our federal government, in local government, we see people abuse or or misapply this principle, or actually they do the opposite all the time. For the sake of the one, they punish the many. That is lose-lose because eventually, eventually the one is probably going to go anyway. You've just, you've just you know, prolonged the pain and you've prolonged the agony and you've 
you know, you ultimately set the organization back. And this is not a lack of compassion. This is an expression of compassion. It's not a lack of love. It is an expression of love. But it's, you know, it's not the leader's, you know, favorite day of the week, but it's part of the leader's responsibility. And, you know, unfortunately, I've, you know, been part of those conversations and it's, it's never good, but it's, it's the right thing to do. You know, Andy, I tell leaders all the time, I've never had a leader say to me, I think I had that conversation with them too soon. <laughs> it's well, often the other way yeah. around. You know, yeah. I waited too. I put that off too long. You know, I denied the inevitable because I wasn't honest myself and not willing to be honest with them. You know, and it, it goes right back to that. And, and I'm glad you said that, Sean, because um, it should be hard. If it's not hard to let somebody go, then you need to look in the mirror, okay? Yeah. This should be agonizing. If it feels agonizing, you're healthy. If it's easy and you never, you just move on like nothing happened, again, you may be the one with the character problem. So the reason we're slow is because we care. But at some point, you know, those difficult decisions have to be made. Well, that's a great segue into question number two as we just talk about legacy and the impact you want to have on people and on the kingdom, you know, talk about applying that to, to leadership, you know, and working with lots of leaders. I mean, you've coached tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of leaders mm-hmm. around this idea. What I've found is a lot of leaders have a hard time sort of attaching the legacy question, what story I want to tell to like my daily schedule, you know, my weekly schedule. Maxwell mm-hmm. says, make the decision once, manage it daily. Batterson just wrote his great book called Win the Day. You know, you have an ineptability to connect that big picture, strategic picture, what you want your legacy to look like with a very intentional life. You know, what advice could you give to leaders to close that gap, to, to, to end up where they want to end up? Yeah, so the second question, I call it the legacy question. And the second question is, what story do I want to tell? Um, so here's the, here's the advantage of this question. When we're in the middle of a season of life or in the middle of making a decision or a rough patch in your marriage, a rough patch in the organization, you don't think in terms of your story. You think in terms of circumstances right now. Mm-hmm. And this is why in the midst of especially difficult circumstances or a difficult decision to pull back and remember one day, this is simply going to be a story that I tell. And all of us have examples. If I were to ask either of the two of you, hey, tell me about high school. Think about this. You will reduce high school to one sentence, maybe two, right? It's just a short story you tell. So you can barely even remember it. Well, no matter how big the incident is, whether it's starting an organization, folding an organization, a health scare, a divorce, eventually it's in the rearview mirror and is it just it's just a story that you tell. So the question to ask in the midst of all the overwhelming circumstances where we're tempted to compromise, tempted to lie, tempted mm-hmm. to force our way, tempted to say things we're going to regret later is to stop and ask, okay, when this is nothing more than a story I tell, what story do I want to tell? This brings so much perspective because this is the legacy. And the other way to ask it is, what story do I want told about me? When this is nothing more than a story I tell, what story do I want to tell my children? 
when, you know, when we're, the divorce is over and some years have gone by, my kids are old enough to, you know, hear what happened between mommy and daddy. What story do I want to tell? And here's what I say to folks all the time. You don't want to have to skip any parts of your story. So write a story worth telling. Write a story worth telling. Decide your story and decide a story that's worth telling. And never make a decision that makes you a liar for life. And a liar for life is when we make a decision under pressure, a bad decision, um, one that we regret later. And then when this is nothing more than a story we tell, we want to skip that part of the story or we want to lie about that part of the story. This is why this question for high school students and college students mm. is so important because they think in terms of what well, we all do. We think in terms of right now, but right now is going to be in the rearview mirror. It's going to be nothing more than a story we tell. So when this is nothing more than a story you tell, what story do you want to tell? So great, man. The, uh, the third question, Andy, uh, the conscience question, um, you highlight the question, is there a tension that deserves or attention that deserves my attention? Mm -hmm. um, you recommend that that be almost like a speed bump to cause you to pause. Yep. Um, so often it's our human inclination to procrastinate. So how do we how do we draw the distinction here between procrastinating and 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 healthy pause? Well, let me explain the the idea behind the question a little bit, and that might help with the answer. So the question is: Is there a tension that deserves my attention? And here's what I mean by that: You're in the middle of making a decision. Um, it looks like you know exactly what to do. This is what everybody else does. This is industry standard. Everybody's nodding. The contract's written. You know, the board's ready to vote. And there's just something about it that you can't put your finger on. And you're just not sure when that happens, hit pause and pay attention to that tension. Don't rush by it. Don't brush by it. Don't ignore, don't ignore it. If there's anything that bothers you, even though you can't put your finger on it, you need to pay attention to that tension because if you do, and if you create the space in the margin that you need to, more information, we've all experienced this, more information generally surfaces. And the problem is, in the moment, it feels like we're just following our emotions. You're not. In fact, scientists tell us, um, neurologists tell us, there's actually a part of our brain that first causes us to pause when there's more information to come or when there's more information that's going to even surface that we already know of or have forgotten about. That, that, that intuition, that intuition that causes us to hesitate is not just emotion. It's something we need to pay attention to. And for those of us who are believers, we've all lived long enough to know that from time to time, God stirs our conscience. Even though there's no information, there is a stirring and it is foolish, foolish, foolish to ignore that tension. If there's something that bothers you about her, let it bother you. If there's something that bothers you about him, about the deal, about the job, about the move, about the decision, just if there's something that bothers you, don't rush. Let it bother you. My dad used to call it um, a red flag moment or a, or a check in his spirit. He'd say, I have a kind of a check in my spirit about that. And as a kid, that would drive me crazy because I'm like, well, that doesn't help me. You know, give me some information because I want to know why, why, why. And the people around you are going to be like, but what's wrong? Why? They want information, information, information. You don't have any information. You just have a gut check. Pay attention to that tension. So, just before you're about to make a big decision, if there's anything, if there's something, you can't even put your finger on it, pay attention to that tension. So the question is, is there a tension 
Is there attention that deserves my attention? Now, back to your question, Todd, about procrastination. That's a completely different thing. Um, if, if, you know, and generally speaking, um, I'm a slow decision maker and being a slow decision maker is not necessarily a bad thing. I generally get in trouble if I make decisions too quickly than too slowly. So trying to learn ourselves as leaders to determine what's procrastination, what's abdication, what's delegation and what's I'm just tired. And then what is, you know what? I know everybody's leaning in that direction. I know that's what everybody expects us to do, but Guys, I, I can't put my finger on it, but there's just something I'm not, I'm, I'm just not ready to do that. Hey, when it's that, when that's the situation, as a leader, especially pay attention to that tension. I'll tell you where else we see this. If you're a parent and you got middle schoolers, you got high schoolers, you've experienced this. They come home, they're kind of giving you the game plan. Here's what we're going to do. Here's where we're going to go. Here's who's <laughs> going to be there. And they're giving you all the information and there's just something, there's just something. Well, as a parent, you've learned, you pay attention to that tension. Of course, it's going to drive our kids crazy like it drove us crazy because they're like, but why, but why, but why? And you don't know why. That's okay. You pay attention to the tension. Hmm. And I would say it's the, t- it's the same with a leadership team. You know, a lot of times as a senior leader, like you've been there, you can see what they can't see. You know, and they're yeah. they're ready to charge hell with a water gun. But as the senior <laughs> right. leader, you're like, something just doesn't feel right, you know. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit most of the time trying to give yeah. us pause to slow down, process, get more information. And again, you've just done that so well over time, just making good, consistent decisions with everything North Point. So just hats off to you. It gives you moral authority to write a book on decision making. You should consider that. <laughs> right. It, it does seem like, though, that difference between the Holy Spirit check versus fear. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, some, that, that's what links to the procrastination for me is I know sometimes for me, yeah, the team wants to move. And it, 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 it's easy for my hesitation to be more out of fear than it is an actual tension check. And that's why you have to ask all five questions. Because do you know where you discover right. fear when you say, okay, Andy, why are you putting this off? Really? Why don't you want to go forward? Really? Mm. Because I'm afraid. Years ago, we were um, big. One of the biggest decisions we ever made, one of the biggest money decisions we ever made as an organization was we were going to build two. We had the opportunity to build two buildings, two campuses at the same time, two capital campaigns, which is financial suicide for a church. (laughs) And I was talking to our elders just years ago, and I was trying to I went into the meeting to say, hey, we need to decide which capital campaign we want to do first. So, you know, 30 minutes into the meeting, they're like, we should do both. And I'm like, we can't do both. I mean, we got to do one or the other. We're talking about tens of millions of dollars. They're like, nope, we can do both. And I'm like, what do you mean we? It's my neck on the line. You know, you guys can all leave the church and go join Sean's church. You know, I'll be the one (laughs) saying, hey, my name's name in the paper, right? So I'm pushing back, pushing back. (laughs) One of our elders, there's 10 of them, one of me. They all just thought, hey, we can do it. Let's do two capital campaigns. And one of them, I'll never forget. Actually, it was Scotland Wright, Bryant Wright's brother. He said, Andy, have more faith. So the elders are telling the pastor, have more faith. Well, you know, I said, well, just let me, you know, I got to process this. Well, I realized I was afraid. I mean, mm-hmm. I've put together a board. You trust the process. These are godly men. They've looked at the numbers. They're wise. They think we should go forward. Yeah, I was hesitating, 
But it wasn't, oh, I have a check in my spirit. I'm like, no, this is, this is financial suicide. I came back. I said, you know what? This is what you think we should do. We'll do it. I got up. I launched two capital campaigns. It, it all ended up working. They were exactly right. But if I had been the sole proprietor and the sole decision maker, I would have not gone forward simply because of fear. But it took me a little bit to recognize, okay, I'm worried. I'm afraid. I'm worried about my reputation. These guys think we can do it. So let's go forward. That's fantastic, man. And it, it slides right into question number four, the maturity question. What's the wise thing to do? You know, I, I tell pastors all the time, Andy, in church leadership, like it's, it's, it's a lot easier to know what to do than to know how to do it. You know, yeah. and we see young pastors. I did it. You know, you, you mean well, you're ready to charge hell with a water gun. We're all type A driven personalities, senior guys anyway. And you do the right thing the wrong way. You still blow things and people up. Yeah. How, how, how can we teach leaders through this decision-making grid, not only know how to do the right thing, but how to do it the right way so they don't blow their church up? You know, so they don't blow their staff up with the latest conference idea, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Help us today. Yeah. So the fourth question, is, and this is something I was raised on. This is something I taught as soon as I began teaching middle school, high school students many, many years ago. Um, the question is, what is the, the, the maturity question is, what is the wise thing to do? And the reason I call it the maturity question is it takes maturity to ask this question because it's human nature to live right up against the line of moral, immoral, legal, illegal, permissible, you know, non-permissible. Um, I'm in control. Oops, I'm out of control. Nobody's going to find out what, it, you know, we, we drive just above the speed limit. You know, we don't want to have, we want to drive as a little bit faster than the law allows without having an encounter with the law. It's just human nature to have no margin, no financial margin, no time margin. So the better question is not, is it illegal? Is it moral? Is it good? Is it right? Is it wrong? The better question is, what is the wise thing to do? And so the way I tease this out and have for years is to ask the question at three levels. And this, is, this takes maturity. In light of my past experience, what is the wise thing for me to do? It may not be everybody else's decision. Everybody else's past is different than mine. In light of my past decision, in light of my past experience, What's the wise thing for me to do? In light of my current circumstances, what is the wise thing for me to do? In light of my future hopes and dreams, what is the wise thing for me to do? Not right and wrong. When I used to teach this uh, principle to high school students, I would have them memorize this little rhyme. There's good and there's bad, but that's not my cue. But rather, what is the wise thing to do? There's good and there's, there's bad, but we don't live on the edge of, well, if it's not wrong, it must be right. There's good and there's bad. That's not my cue but rather what is the wise thing to do? So, and we as Christians in particular have been instructed to live according to wisdom. If you want to know what God's will is, it is the way of mm. wisdom. So again, it creates guardrails, it creates parameters, it creates guidelines, and basically it keeps us from regret because we create financial margin, moral margin, relational margin, ethical margin. What is the wise thing to do? It's fantastic. It's great. And, it, and just to follow on from the previous question, the capital campaign idea, um, I see the interconnectedness now that you're talking about. If, if instead of fear being the thing holding you back, you would have concluded, I've got this pause and it's, there's so, I'm not afraid, there's something that I got to get my hands around. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming you would say, even though you're only one out of 10 and the other nine are wanting to move forward, the wise thing to do is to say, hey, 
I feel like we need to get our hands around this additional thing I can't get my hands around. Is that is that the interconnectedness of the question? Well, no, I'm glad you brought this up. Actually, in that situation, the wise thing for us to do was what they wanted us to do, because there's wisdom in a multitude of good counselors. So I had my perspective, which was, you know, filtered through my fear and what's going to happen. And I'm going to be the one that gets in trouble. But I'd surrounded myself with great people. This is why organizations need to have great boards and have great people on their board and trust the system, trust the system trust the system. Don't bypass it. Don't hijack it. Don't try to work around it. Just trust the system. So if I believe God had us put this this way of doing our organization together this way, if I feel like the right people are in the room, then I need to trust the system. So the, the wisdom part of that was, hey, if they think this is what we should do, then wisdom says, wisdom dictates, let's trust the system and follow their guidance. Only two times in 20 five years have the elders outvoted me. And in both cases, it was nine or 10 to one. I was always the holdout and they were right both times. That's permission giving out there, pastors. <laughs> well, you got to have the right people in the room though, you know? In yeah. fact, you know, I love what Jim Collins says. He says, aspire to be the dumbest person in the room. Aspire to be the dumbest person in the room. Um, that's great advice. If you think you have to be the smartest person in the room, you don't even need a room, okay? And, and you've just become the lid to your organization. So aspire to be the dumbest person in the room. And you guys can understand this, and most many people in your audience will understand this. Pastors are often scared to death to surround themselves with people who are smarter than them, um, more powerful than them, richer than them, more influential than them, because they're afraid that somebody's going to take over the church and take it in the direction they don't want to go. And that happens, no doubt about it. But if you want a great organization, you got to have the right people in the room. You got to have great people. And pastors should not fear the right kind of people and should not fear a board. It is protection. Um, from time to time, people ask me, uh, church leaders, hey, Andy, what's the big, what's the worst decision you've ever made as a pastor? What's the worst decision that church has ever made? And I always struggle with that decision. And it's not because I'm a great decision maker, but I have been so blessed to be surrounded by great men and women who have kept me and kept us from making big, bad decisions that, you know, have the potential to derail our organization. So who you have around you is so important. He who walks with the wise grows wise. The companion of fools suffers harm. So it's a wisdom issue and it's a why am I doing this really issue? And it's a what story do I want to tell issue as well. Well, that priority of who we have around us leads to the final question, the relational question. Uh, What does love require of me? Um, Give us an example, Andy, whether it's the elders, the staff, but again, in church leadership, uh, an example where this has applied for you. Well, let me talk a little bit about it. I'm sorry I keep backing up on these. The other four questions, there is a return on investment. If you ask, what is the wise thing to do? What what story do I want to tell? Is there attention that deserves my attention? Am I being honest with myself, really? There will be a return on investment. You will benefit from asking, answering honestly, and acting on those four questions. The fifth question is different. The fifth question, the relationship question, there may be no return on investment. It may just cost you, period. Because the other four questions are kind of about you and me, The fifth question, the relationship question, is about somebody else. 
It's about others. But the fifth question changed the world, and it should be the hallmark of Christian behavior. And the fifth question, the relationship question is, as you said, is what does love require of me? In this situation with my wife, with my husband, with my kids, with my board, with a staff member. Okay, I know what I want to do. I know what I did last time. I know what I'm tempted to do. I know what they did to me. But what does love require of me? Jesus was so clear. I'm giving you one command. As I have loved you, and I get criticized for this all the time because people can't seem to hear. He did not say love one another. That is way too open-ended. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And guys, if you think you've seen me love, you have not seen anything yet because tomorrow I'm going to put on a demonstration of love that takes my breath away and takes your breath away and takes your sin away. Now, that is the standard to live by. What does love require of you? I am to do unto others as God through Christ has done unto me. Forget the golden rule. This is the platinum rule. This is a whole different way of living. But that means even when it costs me, when it costs me a relationship, when it costs me credibility, when it costs me acceptance and love from other people, I have to ask the question, okay, I know what I want to do. I know what I'm tempted to do. I want everybody to like me. But what does love require of me? If we can't do that, and if we're not willing to set that out as part of our decision-making filter, we need to get out of the ministry because I'm convinced that is the epicenter. That is the epicenter of the Christian experience. And there may be no return on that investment. But then again, our Savior laid down his life for us, for the world, and for the church. So what does love require of me? And don't now, you think there's power, Andy, in even proactively and preemptively telling your team, you know, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm not I always going to I don't have to tell my team up. that, but go ahead. <laughs> I, but, 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 I, but I, I want you to know anything I say to you, any action I take surrounding you, it's out of a desire to steward you well and care for you and love you well as Jesus love, loves me. Yeah, I, I hope. I mean, again, it's, I, you're exactly right, Sean, but isn't it strange that we would feel like we even have to say that? I mean, this, yeah. should, be, this, sh- this should be the water. This should be the flow. This should be the temperature of our staff, our staff culture, and our relationships, which means when we screw up, because we are going to screw up, nobody has to tell me and nobody has to call me on account. I'm going to show up at your door and say, okay, I apologize. I shouldn't have said that. I, you're not going to have to track me down and find me. I'm going to be at your door owning my fault, owning my error, owning my sin, restoring this relationship before you have to come looking for me. I don't want you at home with your husband or wife, you know, having to talk about how do we get to Andy and how do we, you know, I, you know, when we get this right, um, our, our accounts with other people are short. What does love require of me? And this works, well, it doesn't matter if it works. This is what we're called to as Christians. But think about this, and you know this, guys. You get a group of people together, even marginally talented group of people together who are committed to that question in their relationships. Hey, the systems aren't as important. Communication is easier. You recover quicker. You make bad decisions and recover quicker. You trust. I mean, the currency of relationship is trust. There's so much trust. So there is a corporate advantage to creating a culture around this question. But even if there's not a culture of it, this is what I'm to ask in every single conflict, every single staff situation, everything at home, what does love require of me? Well, thanks for loving a 28-year-old church planter. 
with a big Southern draw from Birmingham, Alabama, you know, 22 years ago. And thanks for once again, writing something down for everybody that lets them in on some of those coffee lunch conversations, Todd, and I've got to have with you. Better decisions, fewer regrets, guys. Go check it out. Get one for your family. Get one for your team. Every um, college student in America, right? Every college. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It could absolutely keep them from a train wreck, you know, like it's done for Andy Stanley. So thank you, my friend. Yep. Enjoy it. <laughs>